I think that Percy Silito would have been disappointed with how that last mission for De Beers ended because he was a very professional man, he was a very moral man, and he would not have liked the ending in a bloodbath as it did. But there was one remarkable thing about it. There was a young journalist writer, ex-intelligence officer himself called Ian Fleming, who witnessed this operation and wrote a book about it, a novel about it, called The Diamond Hunters. And The Diamond Hunters subsequently became Diamonds Are Forever, the, the James Bond classic. Good evening, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, Simon. Tom, we were in 1935, pre-war. I think you were just joining the police round about then. But you were telling us about this incredible character, Percy Silito. And in episode one, you skipped across a lot of his achievements. It was as if there was so much to try and come in. So what I'd like to do is rewind a wee bit to that day and age and look at some of the innovations that he brought about they didn't just influence Edinburgh or Glasgow or Scotland, but there were really global shifts in thinking about investigative processes and lots of other things besides. From 1935, tell us, what was his main thrust then as chief of police here in Glasgow? Okay, well, by 1935, Percy Silito had established himself as the chief constable of Glasgow. He had He'd taken the city by the scruff of the neck, basically, and he'd cleared out the gangs, which were causing huge problems. The no-mean city sort of period of razor gangs and also religiously-based gangs like the Billy Boys. They really were. There were organised crime groups before that phrase was ever penned and because they were actually undermining the whole social fabric of the city. And Percy Solito had taken them on. He used all sorts of novel methods to control the gangs. And of course, his reputation soared. He was the man who could do no wrong. And he used that very carefully, very artfully to actually make systemic change. Now, what he did was, he, first of all, he got rid of a whole lot of senior officers who were well past their sell by date. He retired them. And he also sold off an awful lot of the old police stations, the old Victorian police stations in Glasgow. And remarkably, he managed to keep the capital receipts. Now, many people won't appreciate this, that when you sell police stations or police buildings, the money goes back to the local authorities. The police actually usually don't see the benefit of it. But such was his prestige that he managed to keep the money from the police stations. He promoted a lot of young, up-and-coming men into senior rank. As he used to say, Give people more responsibility than you think they can handle, and time again they'll rise to the occasion. And they did. And so there was a lot of young up-and-coming officers in the city of Glasgow Police. And he also made sure that, so as to spread his gospel, as it were, that quite a lot of his young officers applied for other jobs in the smaller county forces. Now, there were dozens at that time in Scotland. Tiny little forces of 50 and 60 officers all over the area. And Silito made sure that he encouraged his young officers, the lieutenants and inspectors, to get out and become chief constables of these forces. Tom, Tom, would that be when cities or towns had their own police, like Airdrie Constabulary and Coatbridge Police and, and towns round about Edinburgh would have their own police? There was borough forces and then there were county forces. And traditionally, the borough forces 
tended to be commanded by professional police officers, but the county forces were still under the control of the squirearchy. So quite commonly, you'll see chief constables of these small forces as captain so and major so-and-so. In other words, there were retired army officers who were maybe related to the landowner who were put into these positions to basically to act in the interests of the landowner, control coaching, etc. But by the 1920s, this was changing and it was being recognised that actually needed people who were professional police officers in these positions. And you start to see the appointment of quite young men into the chief constable's jobs of smaller county forces, and quite a lot of them were Silito's men. And if you appointed one of Silito's men, it was actually a really good bargain. Not only did you get a well-trained officer, but Silito's men came with an unwritten guarantee that if ever you needed help, then Silito would back his men. And Silito would phone the appointment committees and speak to the local clerks to the council and saying, just to say that I thoroughly recommend young Jim here, he's one of my best men, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, if you ever need help, you can count on the city of Glasgow police. And by that time, the reputation of the city of Glasgow police was really sorry. He had made it into a formidable force and he'd also modernized it. He'd introduced radio cars, the first radio cars. He introduced the police box and pillar system where you had telecommunications. He'd introduced a lot of women officers. He was very keen on bringing women officers into the general policing role, not just as a one or two specialists. At the same time, he was modernizing Glasgow police in all sorts of ways. The energy this guy had was incredible. He introduced the black and white checkered cap band. And of course, the irony is, now, this is what he's remembered for now, is Silito's tartan, the black and white checkered band. In actual fact, that was a very small part of what he did. And interestingly, he did that, he introduced that first onto the caps of mounted police officers, and he did that for visibility. And he simply borrowed it from the Scottish soldiers, the checkered band around their hat. And so before long, the Scottish police service were unique because of their black and white check bands. Police officers in the street were still wearing helmets at that time. The police helmet stayed in until the late 1940s and 50s for beat officers. But officers in cars, and there were more and more of them because, of course, Percy Silito introduced radio cars, they had to wear flat caps. You couldn't wear a helmet in a car. They wore flat caps, and he wanted them to be visible, and he wanted them to be different. And so he used the black and white checkered band, which, as I say, he had first introduced on mounted officers to give them visibility so as to make them distinct. But all of these were just part of what he was doing. What he was really doing and what he was really concentrating on was introducing scientific methods to criminal investigation. His time in Sheffield had convinced him that this was the way forward, this was the way to solve crime. And so one of the first things he did was he established the Glasgow Fingerprint Bureau, which later became the SCRO. Scottish Criminal Records Office, which you and I uh, were familiar with through our service. And he brought Bertie Hammond, an expert from the South, tempted to come up for double promotion and told him to establish a fingerprint bureau because he believed that the criminals of Glasgow, the housebreakers of Glasgow, were lazy and sloppy and that with a rudimentary fingerprint system, 
he could catch them, and he did. And the detection rate for housebreaking went through the roof. And of course, once these people were arrested, then they were given a stark choice. You can face a long term of imprisonment. But on the other hand, if you wanted to become uh, an informant for us, it was put in nicer terms than that, but a police contact, uh, then of course we would recommend that things go easier for you. And so he built his intelligence network. He built a network of informants using forensic science, and he turned them inwards against the criminal enterprises, which they were part of. So he undermined them in that way. But he also had a wider vision for forensic science, which he used always called scientific methods. He didn't use the word forensic science. And he was convinced that Scotland should act as one, not just Glasgow. And so he influenced Edinburgh Police to the air. We had fingerprints in Edinburgh, but we specialized in crime scene photography. We specialized in crime scene management. And he influenced other forces, the larger forces, to specialize in areas of forensic science, but not to compete with each other. Because his vision was that Scotland would act as one. And there was no point in repeating, always repeating what we were, what each other were doing. So all of this was going on in 1935 when the body parts of people, human remains were found down in Moffat in Dumfrieshire. Just before we go on to that, Tom, can I just recap a wee bit about fingerprints there? Because again, it's one of these things that you and I take for granted, having been CID officers for so long. The fact is that every time somebody was arrested and put in a cell in the morning, one of the first jobs of the CID, or the back shift, if it was a busy back shift, was constantly CID officers were involved, certainly in Glasgow, taking fingerprints and photographing the accused person before he had gone to court, before he had gone anywhere. We had an SCRO number made up that was generated automatically. It was put onto a wee board with the numbers and letters, white letters on a blackboard and placed just about here under the chin, across the chest. And we photographed them profile straight on and took the fingerprints on the old pads that we had at that time. In fact, I had rolled ink when I was operating the oven. It was inked. We rolled onto a, a gold-plated slab and individually took the fingerprints of these guys. And if they were going to be turned into contacts, as you called them, that's generally when it would happen because they were desperate for a cigarette. Delighted just to get a chat to somebody, anybody at all. And generally, we would encourage that in all sorts of ways. But those fingerprints were then sent away, physically sent away in those days, by mail, by internal mail, to SCRO, where they were stored pending conviction. If he was already a convicted person, he or she had already been convicted, those fingerprints might well replace the ones that are being held on file. They might be better, they might not, but certainly more up to date. But the truth of the law is that if he's not convicted, if the charges are dropped or he's not convicted on trial or whatever, then those fingerprints would be destroyed. The key to that is that they could never be used if someone had never been convicted. Those fingerprints could never, ever be used in another case or investigation moving forward. But what we were doing every day, you can imagine the fun we had at Ibrox. You had the same problems to a lesser degree through Easter Road and Tynecastle. But on a Saturday, we could have 120, 140 locked up, and they all had to be fingerprinted that night and the following morning. 
It was a real nightmare. We did exactly the same. Interestingly, Simon, for all your comparative youth, what you were doing there was the direct legacy of what Percy Silito introduced in Glasgow in the early 1930s. It was very little changed and it was hugely effective. It was hugely effective. And of course, it started the CIDs and detectives and police officers thinking in a way about scientific methods and about forensic science. When did Soko start then talking? The scenes of crime really started about the same time. And in fact, Edinburgh really specialised in scenes of crime. And as early as the 1940s, had a kitted out van with all the scientific bits and pieces in it, you know, like a mobile laboratory. So it was all about the same time. And it all grew from the same thinking. Because, of course, the Ruxton murders, which were probably the most consequential murder investigation of the 20th century, not for the crimes themselves, but for the changes that were brought about because of the crimes. After the Ruxton murders and the enormous publicity of the trial and the extensive press coverage that arose from it, forensic science was the thing of the day. Everybody was reading Agatha Christie, everybody's reading Hercule Poirot, and here you had this magic in real life forensic science. Everybody was keen on it. And Percy Silito quite cleverly used that to leverage money from both the Scottish and the British governments and helped to establish forensic laboratories. So Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dundee and Aberdeen labs were all established in the late 1930s, early 1940s, just about the outbreak of the war, as a direct consequence of the Ruxton murders and of Percy Silito's very clever political manoeuvring. In September 1935, the decomposed body parts, some 40 body parts, were found lying in a ravine just outside the small town of Muffet in Dumfrieshire. They'd obviously been there for some time. They were rotten, they were maggot-infested. And there followed the most incredible criminal investigation, a very modern criminal investigation, which established really forensic science in the mainstream of criminal investigation. Professor John Blaster, Sidney Smith, brilliant forensic scientists, and they developed a number of new techniques in that case alone. For instance, if forensic entomology was born there with the Ruxton maggots to establish the post-mortem interval, the time of death of these people who had been cut up, who turned out to be two women. The use of dermal fingerprinting, never used before, where the dermis, that's not the epidermis, the outer skin, but the inner skin was used to lift a fingerprint, never done before and facial superimposition. Now we see facial reconstruction as being a fairly standard way of identifying skulls and old remains. But the first time it was ever done and used in a criminal case was in the Ruxton case. So it was a, a brilliant passage of forensic science. I've written a book about it, Ruxton, the First Modern Murder. It is such an extraordinary story that it really deserves a whole study on its own. But the thing about it was that because of the trial and because of the notoriety of the case, it was the sensation of the age. It was the crime of the century, literally. And because of that, there was tremendous media attention. And Silito, along with Glaister and Sidney Smith, recognised that they could use this notoriety to drive forward the standardisation of forensic methods. Up until that time, 
Really, forensic science had been very peripheral in most of these cases. And in fact, fingerprints had been the sole possession of the London Metropolitan Police. In the Ruxton trial, it was the first time ever that a non-metropolitan police officer had given evidence to identify fingerprints in a court. Um, so that's how groundbreaking it was. Uh, and as I say, it really was a turning point and the change between ancient history and modern policing techniques. It was that important. Do you think that was a global phenomenon? Were the Met the, the first force in the world then to have this database and use of fingerprints, Tom? Or was this going on in the States and, and further afield? No, it was going on in the States because quite a lot of what um, Glasgow did in setting up the Fingerprint Bureau was actually based on the FBI. It was actually based on the FBI Bureau because Persis Silato had become friendly with J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. And actually, as the story unfolds, you'll see more and more connection between Silato and the FBI, particularly when it comes to counter espionage, which, of course, is one of the FBI's primary tasks. Tom, I don't want to preempt the book because the book is, is standalone and it's fascinating. Ruxton, the first modern murder. And remind me to talk about us getting that up on the website for sale as soon as we can, because it's fascinating. It's a bestseller now. And Moffat, the Moffat Museum and stuff like that, we can put some information about all of that up for our listeners at Crime Time Inc. But what I was fascinated by was the crime scene. How did the cops, the local cops down in Dumfries and Galloway, how did they know how to preserve the scene, how to gather evidence, how to, how to preserve it, how to make it fit for court and examination? at the end of the day. Can you tell us a wee bit about that without spoiling the book, if you like? The short answer is they didn't. The first man at the scene was a man called Sergeant Bob Sloan, Robert Sloan. He was a the local sergeant in Muffet. He had no experience in serious crime. There were, there were, there were no CID officers in Dumfrieshire. They did not have any CID officers at all. <laughs> they had no uh, scenes of crime expertise at all. It was a small force of 78 men. And Bob Sloan arrives at the scene late afternoon on a Sunday afternoon in September. It's getting dark. He has no equipment. He has no experience. He has no training and he has no specialised backup at all. But Robert Sloan was uniquely qualified in one way. He was uniquely qualified because he had served in the Scots Guards on the Western Front in the First World War, and he was as tough as you could imagine. Not just physically tough, but psychologically, he was toughened. And no amount of maggots or rotten flesh or any of that sort of thing could put him off, because he'd seen it all before. He'd done it all before. And just by using his common sense and his notebook and pencil, he had nothing else. His common sense, his notebook and pencil, he carried out what was, in any term, in any time, even now, would be considered to be a perfect crime scene management exercise. Now, I have no idea, Simon. He died a young man. He died when he was still in his 40s of a medical condition, which he'd got in the trenches in the First World War. I have no idea how he did it. And I would dearly have loved to sat down and said, how did you manage to do that? And even now, when I describe what he did to modern detectives, serving detectives now, they go, how did he do that? 
he did. And of course, what that did was that set the investigation on the right path. You and I both know that for all the marvels of forensic science and senior officers and computers, if the first man or woman at the scene makes a mess of it, then it's always a mess. And vice versa, if the first man or woman at the scene makes a good job of it, then you're on the right course. And Robert Sloan, Bob Sloan, the test must be, I often say to young officers, I read the book. And they say to me, I really enjoyed it. And I said, there's only one question for you. And they said, what's that? And I said, would you have done as well as Bob Sloan? Would you? Would you? And they go, mm, not sure. So that's the test. That's the test. And that's even now with all the training and all the knowledge we have about preservation of crime scene and things. He should have gloves on, he should have boots on, he should have overalls on, whatever. Floodlights and reflective tape and <laughs> white body covers and nothing. A notebook and pencil. Tom, it's one of the fascinating facets of the book. So I'm not going to go on about Bob Sloan just now because all the information's there. And you need to read it in context, I think, as well. But the one thing that uh, is incredible, and it's an incredible story that I hope you'll share with us, is how you came to become in possession of the facts about the Ruxton case. Let people know that it's not just fictional in any shape or form. No, it's a true story which is stranger than fiction. I came across it in a strange way. And actually, the story we're telling tonight about Percy Silito, I discovered Percy Silito, or the full extent of Percy Silito, while I was researching this book, the Ruxton book. What happened was that in the 1970s, an old detective, an Edinburgh detective, died. And like many old detectives, he'd kept a box of papers in his loft about some of the cases he had been involved in. I thought I was the only one. You're not the, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. And, and it was many years later, in about the 90s, that his house was being cleared out for sale. His family were selling the house and they came across these papers and they recognised there were police documents, and they thought we'd better hand it into a police station. It was handed into a police station, it lay in a drawer there for some years, and eventually, about the turn of the millennium, 2000, 2001, two, it found its way to me. I was the DCC at that time in Lothian Borders, I was the Director of Ops, and if there was any documents or anything, if there was anything needed the last look before it was thrown out, it came to me. So I had a look at these, and I thought, oh, the Ruxton murders. And of course, if you've been at detective training course, you knew all about the Ruxton murders, or I thought I did it. But then when I took time to read the documents, I realised there was a whole new story to be told. And I also realised that many people who had played significant roles in that period had been airbrushed out of history. And other people had been remembered for the wrong things, including Percy Silito. And so that piqued my interest and of course, I'd heard of Percy Silito and the black and white checkered hat band. So I started to look at Percy Silito in more depth in connection with the Ruxton murders and the role he had played there. And then I started to look at him more widely and realised that here was an, a remarkable man that you couldn't make up his life. He is larger than a fictional character. And that's why I decided to write about him and speak about him as we're doing now. So that was original document that had been retained from the time of the Ruxton murders. Original documents, uh, the old telephone messages, you now remember the telephone messages where you 
if you telephoned an outside force or another division, you wrote down verbatim what the conversation was. So it was like a time capsule, Simon. It was like hearing the voices of the men. When I opened the file, that was the first time that file had been opened since 1935. Where, that's like some of the notes in your wallet, Tom, from what the, the stories that I've had. <laughs> longer than that, even. Longer than that, long, longer than that 10 shilling note, which I've still got. Yeah. But, and so where are they now? Where are those notes now, Tom? I still have them. And uh, what I'm looking to do is to present them to an archive, probably the Edinburgh City Archive at some point. Fantastic. I wish George Barnsley was here. George was one, our very first guest here on Count Time specifically to talk about the police officers that were murdered at Carstairs and Carlook. But uh, George is a historian, a police historian, and I'm sure he would have lots of stories like that that are pure chance, these threads of chance that run through our lives and open up avenues like this. And this one, not just the Roxton murders, but uh, Percy Sillerto as well. So we were in 1935, and Percy's making all these changes. And um, Silito really is the most powerful police officer in Scotland and perhaps in, in the UK. And he, uh, there's various people try to tempt him away to come to other forces down south. But he loves Glasgow. He loves living in Glasgow. He loves the people of Glasgow. And he wants to stay. And then, of course, war breaks out. And it's very interesting because so much of what happened in the Second World War is still secret. It's under the 100 years rule. We will not get the release of documents until 2039 or, or, or later than that. But it's very clear that Silito is involved right from the start in the field of intelligence and working with MI5. Now, you might remember earlier I said that Silito had been a, an intelligence officer during the First World War in Tanganyika. And clearly, he'd kept his contacts. He was connected also to the FBI, as we've already discussed. Because you start to see things happening, particularly in relation to German spies who were landed in Scotland during the Second World War. And there were actually more of them than you might think. Now, I know that later on, we're going to do a completely separate story about some of the German spies in Scotland. But there's no doubt in my mind that Percy Silito was involved in that and involved in the development of what was called the double-cross system, because it's got Percy Silito's fingerprints all over it. Please excuse the pun. <laughs> the double-cross system was simply this. German spies were parachuted or landed into Britain, and very often they were arrested very soon after. They weren't very well prepared. A kind of a shotgun approach, send a lot in, and some might get through, and it didn't matter if others didn't get through because they were expendable. They really were the expendables. A lot of them were arrested, and if their arrest had been able to be made in a quiet fashion, then they were turned to become double agents. And so what they started to do was, instead of feedback intelligence about ships and aerodromes and movements of troops in Britain, this is all leading up to the planned invasion of Britain by the Nazis in the early 1940s, Instead of that, they're turned and they're sending back false information. And it was hugely successful because the Germans didn't know which of their agents were sending them back true and which was false. And when you look at the way that Silito had infiltrated the gangs in Sheffield, 
how you destroyed the gangs in Glasgow, one of the ways was to have informants and double agents working within these organizations. Yeah. Undercover operatives, really, just as the job that you did later on in the police. Touched on the whole principle of it there, Tom, it's mistrust. Because the truth becomes, you can't discern the truth anymore because you don't know who to trust. And that's the whole premise of it, is to sow the seeds of doubt in the other team. And they, don't, they can't operate because they don't know who they can speak to. They, do, they become paranoid, totally paranoid. It was the same with a lot of counter-surveillance that we did. We took great pleasure. People think that the criminals could make it hard for you to follow them. The problem was they had no idea what to look for in the first place. And the other thing was that they had to assume that we were following them 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. When in actual fact, we might never follow them. So it's all about sowing those seeds, mistrust and doubt in their heads. Obviously, Percy was a master of that. He was indeed. So much so that the next thing that happens to Percy is he gets a phone call in 1944, very early 1944. He gets a phone call from the Prime Minister's office, Winston Churchill's office, saying, I know that you've turned down many opportunities to be a chief constable elsewhere, but I'm instructing you that you must come to be chief constable of a new force, the County of Kent in the south of England. There was no choice given. Percy Silotto had to leave his beloved Glasgow and go to the County of Kent. Now, Kent is a huge county, of course, and comprised a dozen little police forces, which had all been knocked into one to create one big force, the County of Kent, because Kent was going to be the jumping off point for the invasion of Europe, yeah. for D-Day in June 1944. And security was absolutely paramount. So Silito was told, get down there. He was knighted, Sir Percy Silito. He get down there, take a handful of people with you, but you've got to set up, run this new force, and you've got to set up a secure establishment in the county of Kent. And you've got to start disseminating false information so as to confuse the enemy. Because it was absolutely vital that the Germans did not know that the Allied invasion was going in on Normandy. What? We wanted the Germans to think was that it was going over in the Pas de Calais, the shortest route. And so Silito moved down to Kent very quickly, established himself there. He took with him a handful of officers from Glasgow to, to, who he trusted and who he knew. But he also recruited large numbers of women officers down there because, of course, there were no male officers in that part of the world because of the war, yeah. because they were all serving in the forces. He recruited... Huge numbers, I'm talking hundreds of women officers and promoted many of them to senior rank. And in fact, if you look at the senior women officers who went on to be assistant commissioners in the 1950s and be the very sort of the models of senior women officers in British policing, many of them were recruited by Percy Silito in Kent in 1944. You read about the war effort and prior to D-Day and all that, and all the misinformation that we were feeding across the continent, not directly to the Germans, because that would be too obvious to the Nazis, but via prisoner war camps and all sorts, of, hundreds of different avenues of misinformation. And I've always thought that Churchill was a, a mastermind behind that. And he actually was, and his master stroke, if you like, was to bring Percy Silito down to Kent to do that, because it's obvious now 
him and his team, they built what they were doing and to great effect. Well, of course, Churchill's famous uh, quote was that the truth is so precious that it must be surrounded by a wall of lies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, and, and, and that actually is, uh, explains his philosophy perfectly and Silito's philosophy personally. That actually explains my book. <laughs> well, there you are. You pinched it for Winston Churchill because he's just slightly older than you. <laughs> but uh, the, it was hugely successful because, of course, the Germans didn't know where the invasion was coming in. And they went to enormous lengths. They created a whole false army headed by George Patton, a famous American commander. He was paraded around and they had all sorts of dummy airfields and dummy tanks. It was an hugely elaborate scheme. Now, I don't think for a minute that Percy Soloto was alone in this, but there's no question that looking at his pattern of behavior and the way he operated right from the very start in Africa, back in Sheffield and in Glasgow, that he would have had his, his fingers in that pie. And if there was any proof needed of that, it comes just after the war when Percy Soloto is asked to become the director general of MI5. Now. It had never been done before. MI5, the Domestic Security Service, and MI6, the Secret Intelligence Service, Foreign Intelligence, had always recruited from within their own mm. ranks or from the ranks of the diplomatic service. So to ask a policeman to come in to MI5 was completely unheard of. And it's never been, it was never done before, it's never been done since. But there was a reason for that. And that was the MI6. During the war, it became apparent that MI6, the Foreign Intelligence Service, had been completely penetrated by communist spies, the so-called Cambridge spies of Burgess, McLean, Philby, Anthony Blunt, and later uh, Klaus Fuchs, the, the guy who leaked the secrets of the atomic bomb. It was very clear that the whole of MI6 or a large part of it, was riddled with traitors. And Percy Silito was called in as a spy catcher to try and sort it out. And to be honest, it was too late. This had been going on since the early 1930s. It had been going for this time 15 years, Blunt and, and McLean and Burgess. And they were all, quite a lot of them were very senior in the security service. So the whole thing, the whole bag of apples was rotten to the core. And of course, Percy met huge resistance because um, the elites of the security service very much resented this policeman or this ordinary policeman coming in. How dare he? However, of course, using his, his typical methods, very straightforward methods, Soto actually made a huge difference. And the reason why MI5 is as powerful and effective as it is today, and I believe it to be a very effective body, was a lot to do with the structure put in place by Persisilito and the fact that it wasn't all just people from Oxford and Cambridge, that there was a mix of people brought in to security service so that there would be no repeat of what happened in the 1930. And I would go as far as to say, with a limited knowledge, no knowledge of MI6 worth talking about, with a limited knowledge of how MI5 worked, simply having been involved in operations with them at different stages and done some surveillance with them on their behalf. But I can see quite clearly 
that the changes you're talking about in policing, Percy brought in so publicly. He did so with MI5 as well because the systems were changed. Remember, we spoke about good people, bad systems. That Percy obviously did. And the remnants of that, you can see right through our security services today, that those systems are self-policing in a lot of ways and very effective. The envy of most of the world. That's right. And I would agree with you. Like you, I've had some dealings with MI5. I always found working with them very harmoniously. There was no sticking points or difficulties. And we were very much on the same script with the same systems in place. And much of that is to do with the philosophy and the doctrine of Persisilito. So by this time, it's 1948. Percy is 60 years of age and he wants to retire. However, he gets one final call. And it's from the massive diamond conglomerate called De Beers. Now, De Beers is a huge South African-based firm, which not only mines for diamonds and other precious metals, but also operates a kind of a, can only use the word cartel, because what De Beers do is they retain diamonds so as to maintain the price. So in other words, if they flooded the market with diamonds, then the price would fall. So what De Beers do is they retain huge stocks and numbers of diamonds, vast wealth in diamonds, so that diamonds retain their value. Huge company, and of course, Silto knew them from his South African days. The problem that De Beers had was that during the war, diamond smuggling had become rife. It had always been controlled, more or less, so that it wasn't a huge problem. It was always diamond smuggling to some extent, but it had got out of control during the war. And Percy was asked to take charge of an operation to suppress diamond smuggling on the borders of Sierra Leone. And so he does this as his last mission in the field. On whose behalf, Tom? He's retired as Director General of MI5, Sir Percy Silito, with a huge international reputation. And De Beers come to him and say, Sir Percy, you're the man for the job. Uh, can you come and help us out? Can you advise us? You're a spy catcher. You're a gangbuster. You are the preeminent police officer of the British Empire. Come and help us. And so he does. And now it's interesting that in Percy Silito's own writings, he doesn't mention this last mission at all. And very little is known about it. And that's because it ended in a bloodbath. Because Percy Silito was given a group of men to work with who were very well armed, but not very well trained. And so what happened was these unfortunate diamond smugglers who were just local kids, basically, paid for by the big guys. It's like drug runners, like the county lines. They were just local kids. They ended up, a lot of them, getting shot by Silito's men. And knowing his reputation as being very straightforward and very correct, I think that Percy Silito would have been disappointed with how that last mission for De Beers ended because he was a very professional man. He was a very moral man and he would not have liked the ending in a bloodbath as it did. But there was one remarkable thing about it. There was a young journalist writer, ex-intelligence officer himself called Ian Fleming, who witnessed this operation and wrote a book about it, a novel about it, called The Diamond Hunters. And The Diamond Hunters subsequently became Diamonds Are Forever, the, the James Bond classic. So 
There we have Percy Soto. Stand back for a minute and look at him. He's a choir boy in London at St Paul's Cathedral. He sings at, at uh, Queen Victoria's funeral commemoration. He's a South African policeman, a rough rider, a mounted trooper. He's an intelligence officer in Tanganyika. He's the chief constable in Sheffield who takes on the gangs and smashes the Peaky Blinders. He establishes Glasgow as being one of the finest professional police forces in the land. Unfortunately, it fell away badly in around about the 1970s. <laughs> Seriously, though, he is the disciple and the originator of forensic methods within the British police service. He fools the Germans as the chief constable of the County of Kent. He is the director general of MI5, and he is the source of the very famous James Bond story, Diamonds Are Forever. Incredible. Now, now, when I say to you, and I use this phrase often, that truth is stranger than fiction, you could not make this man up. You just couldn't. There's an interesting postscript to Percy Solito, Sir Percy. During his latter years, he had this notion. When he retired, he wanted to open a sweetie shop, a candy store. And so when he retired, when he stood down from everything, he and his wife retired to Eastbourne in the south of England, and he opened up a confectionery store, a candy store there. And it was only open for about six months because despite all his skills, and he had, I've described them, myriad skills of leadership and organisation, he couldn't run a confectionery store, and it closed in six months. Ah, ah. And Percy Silito died. He was 70. This time, he'd, he'd, he'd led a hard life. The health overcame him, and he died. And you know what I find remarkable about this man? That there is no statue, there is no commemoration at all of Percy Silito. There is only a very small plaque on a choir stall in St. Paul's Cathedral where he sang as a choir boy when he was nine or ten years old. Okay. There you have him, Sir Percy Silito. You couldn't make him up. Next time on Crime Time, Inc. I was a young detective sergeant. I remember going to this old woman whose house had been broken into time and time again. Her door had been kicked in. It was the time when heroin was raging and people were breaking into houses willy-nilly. And she'd had nothing much stolen, one or two pieces of jewellery, which are family heirlooms, etc. Nothing of any value. But she said to me something that I've never forgotten. She said to me, son, she said, I wish they'd attacked me in the street, because at least I would have felt safe coming home at night. And I've never forgotten that. But there was that woman who was now frightened and insecure in her own home.